Welcome to Explore Our Nature, the podcast where I get to sit down with some of the most inspiring practitioners and researchers within the field of nature connection. I'm your host, Paul Mosley, and if you want to access any of the show notes, you can go to www.paulmosley, that's P-A-U-L-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y.org forward slash podcast. You'll then be able to contact our guests, see what they're up to, and also explore any of the books and references that we make throughout the show. Senior Lecturer in Philosophy and Education. On this episode of the podcast, I welcome Lewis Stockwell. He is the Senior Lecturer in Philosophy of Education at the University of Hertfordshire, as well as being a PhD student at Murray House School of Education at the University of Edinburgh. His big passion is canoeing and canoe paddle making. I still haven't had the heart to show him my attempt at a canoe paddle yet. It's still in production. Um, but obviously with his expertise in philosophy, we get into some interesting conversations. And really it centers around this idea of how can we really embed ourselves with a place and look at our relationship with it versus just thinking of something as a space that we transition through or just use it to facilitate a particular task or activity. Um, one of the highlights for me was when he shared a piece of his writing during this conversation, um, which was based on a trip, which acts as a kind of springboard for that conversation. So join me afterwards, as usual, where I'll share some of my thoughts around how this conversation is going to help me reflect on my practice. For now, please welcome to the show, Lewis Stockwell. Hi, Lewis. Thanks very much for uh, being here and having this conversation today. Hi, Paul. Um, the thing I wanted to get you on to really explore for everybody is this idea of being in nature, the sense of appreciation for it, both in terms of you know, the experiences we're having, but also what we base the value of those experiences on. Um, and then you brought up a point as we were sort of talking about this, um, then reflecting on that after the fact. Um, so we're going to kind of seat this in the idea of environmental aesthetics, but for the uninitiated, for those that maybe feel that like it's a far off, distant, um, kind of purely academic field, could you maybe just give us a, a short little introduction and, and show how it's relevant to our practice? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and uh, yeah, I love that question. I think um, so. There's a there's a there's a couple of steps I think which would be very helpful. Um, uh, one is understanding what aesthetics is. So aesthetics generally is seen as uh, the philosophy of art. Now that is partially right, but partially wrong, as with most things in philosophy. Um, <laughs> so it, whilst it is um, often commonly described as the philosophy of art, it's actually um, it's it's an approach to reasoning, uh, categorizing, um, laying value on something, you know, designating something as X over Y. So, for example, in the case of, of natural aesthetics, which really is where 
um, a lot of our art uh, appreciation comes from, uh, from people like Kant and, and before that, if anybody knows those kinds of um, philosophers, he was talking about nature more than he was actually talking about paintings. Mm. And um, really he, he and uh, natural um, aesthetic philosophers were looking at how you could, for example, say what the sublime was, you know, what, what is wonder? What are these experiences that when we go into a space, how do they make you feel? Is it part of the landscape or is it part of something to do with us? Um, so one of the philosophers who really brought this back into kind of common parlance was a guy called Ronald Hepburn in the 1960s. He was at Edinburgh University. He was in the philosophy department there um, and was a prolific writer and quite um obscurely for a philosopher he actually spent a lot of his time throughout that period writing on a similar kind of topic which was natural mm. aesthetics um in which he his argument was that um we go into the landscape and we tend to know that we have these emotions around it when we enter a landscape and that we can feel things and that the, say the woodland or the water will make us engage with stuff and we'll engage back and it will affect us but we don't have the tools to be able to adequately describe it mm. and he says that's a real failing of aesthetics at the moment is that we don't have the ability to be able to say well why is that why, why is it that it stuns us into silence or yeah. what makes this a an awe-inspiring experience or not We've well, used the two words there that are very, very common and very sought after, which is people have a sense of awe and wonder, but then it kind of yeah. just kind of pushed to one side in terms of, you know, this is some kind of spiritual development and, and we're happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is um, in an educational context, of course, awe and wonder has been used in the primary science national curriculum, that science is there to help us um, develop awe and wonder in the natural world but for Hepburn Hepburn would say well that that can only be part of the story because Hepburn's got a bit of beef with objectivity because he thinks that you know objectivity is only ever going to be part of the story because we as human beings create the language to be able to you know say something is you know um, awe-inspiring or wonderful um, and we create the tools to be able to observe um and uh, we create the categories for something which is awe-inspiring or not mm. and that's where kind of aesthetics and natural aesthetics begins to be really interesting for us as educators because we often don't think about the categories that we apply to our our thinking in practice so for example when we think about well in some cases when we think about being um connected to nature or engaging with nature we tend to feel like we have to go to scientific models of understanding you know that we might look at the leaf and we might try to identify its key features from you know a scientific kind of um, framework that's been created and that's grand mm -hmm. but that often doesn't account for the emotional motivation for going out in there in the first place or our philosophical or um, moral motivations for wanting to go into the landscape or into any natural environment um so yeah natural aesthetics is the 
approach to being able to trying to think about this in 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 this clearest way as possible it's about finding ways of appreciating nature and our experiences of nature on its own terms and by doing that understanding much more deeply how our actions in nature can be valued can be understood can be developed um and it opens up a whole host of other then opportunities to think about things more deeply like nature connection which is a uh, you know a great kind of topic um of, of of the time at the moment absolutely and i think i mean you hit upon a few of the points there which i think are really important and areas i'm exploring at the moment which is you know thinking about the language and so you've got areas mm-hmm. like you know eco-criticism and literacy and uh, eco-linguistics even that are mm-hmm. looking at this and there's a there's a project which i discovered and have recently rediscovered a wonderful project called the dark mountain are you familiar with that at all no i'm not at all um so it's a, a series of nature-based writings and um pieces of artwork and it gets published in spring and autumn each year um, and what's really interesting is how they take this approach of it's looking at the narratives, it's looking at the language that we're using, it's looking at the aesthetics that we associate and explore and use to symbolise and express our experiences of nature. Um, and a much fuller, richer range, I think, as well, because you know, they touch on areas, for example, of mortality, which, is, which mm. doesn't usually fit into the, to the common uh, mindset, into the common kind of set of experiences when we think of, you know, awe and wonder and going out and feeling connected to nature. Um, yeah. So I'm interested, from your experiences, because obviously you've got a huge passion for uh, canoeing and for yeah. paddle making as well. My first paddle is still in development, I have to say. Um, <laughs> it's not ready to share. No. Yet. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> fearing the judgment. But um, so those kind of experiences that you have out on the water then, how are you looking at the landscape, perhaps? Or how have you had moments where you've looked at the landscape and appreciated what's going on within you? Yeah, you know, that's, uh, I love that question. Um, so, I, I mean, I can give you an example of, um, of something, actually. So uh, I recently had to defend my uh, registration to my PhD. Um, and if I'll, I'll share with you something that I did. So I, I, uh, when I got into, say, the landscape, of course, at the moment, my engagement with the landscape is primarily by walking mm-hmm. um, and walking near water because in the COVID-19 um, kind of life that we're in, the Environment Agency and British Canoeing don't, I uh, don't want people canoeing. And I think that's, you know, canoeing runs a, a risk even even when you're, um, you know, skillful. Um, but I, um, so my experiences at the moment, I think the last time I got out on the water was about two months ago, sadly. Um, but, you know, needs must. Um, but what I try to do is I try to kind of narrate my experience. I try to think about um, um, the some of the key concepts in, in natural aesthetics, particularly uh, the early natural aesthetics of Hepburn, because what's interesting is when you look at foundational thinkers in any, anywhere, they often get taken off in their own directions and you get different sub-traditions and, and things like that. Um, so I'll, if, if I'm allowed to, if you're, if you let me, this, this is very short, this is very short. So, cause I think this is, this has really helped me in thinking about how these things, um, 
uh, all come together. So this was a vignette that I that I wrote that started my registration document for my PhD. Um, and it's just a short uh, a short story. So it's um, it starts. I am in the middle of the river. Ahead of me is horizon, enclosed by willows, ash, oak, reeds, and sedges. The reflections are of a mirror-like stillness as the blue from the sky and vibrant greens and yellows create a motley of colour. I'm in touch with the scene. I'm part of the scene. My body is at work as I make my way into the unfolding and enfolding symphony of sight, sound, smell and touch. Cacophonous sounds from the chatter of birds and the rustle of trees both surround but lie ahead of what is ahead. The canoe, paddle and I extend into each other, in which my perception of the river and the water and the canoe's movements become my movements too. The journey will happen only for me and only to me. How can I express that power of change? What do I need to know in order to tell this story of this journey? How can I explain who I might be at the end? And what happens if the river stops flowing? Wow. When's the book coming out? Uh, <laughs> when the PhD is done, um, which will be about four years at this rate. Um, so in answer to your question, there's a number of kind of concepts and experiences which are right at the heart of, of a natural aesthetic understanding of, um, or, of being in a landscape so one thing that Hepburn talks about is the idea of acting in a landscape acting upon a landscape so footsteps you know McFarlane talks about you know um, that your footsteps are, are history when you make a path you know it's a part of living history where you see a path unfold and, or or um, and that you're walking on it and Hepburn says well you're 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 acting upon that landscape whether you like it or not it is a part of what you're doing. Um, but equally, it's acting upon you. And you're in this kind of conversation, even though you're not speaking it, that you're, you're interacting with that landscape and it's having an impact on you. And then subsequently, you're making a change to the way you're behaving as a result. So um, a couple of days ago, I was walking up by an old disused mill and a swan came to say hello. and. And actually, I've been on the water for about two or three years, and my experience of swans is, you know, too many, too many kind of bleeps you would have to have to, for me to describe my experience of swans. Um, but this just came, this swan just came up to me and just kind of just stood and looked at me. No anger, no fear, no hissing. And, you know, it was kind of, there was an interaction there with this bird that I've not experienced before. Mm. And it might have just been, the bird was in a good mood if they have good moods i don't you know i don't i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna humanize it or anthropomorphize the bird but there is this way of being open to the landscape that we might not otherwise be mm. um when when we don't have certain kinds of concepts so when when i first read about you know being acted and acted upon it kind of makes you feel um that that you're not above it 
yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is sometimes what I what I get when I engage with not all by any means, but certainly people who are scientifically um, on one side. They do often feel like they're observing. It's a kind of objective observation. They're not going to be influenced by other factors in that environment in that observation. Yeah, well, it's the default position is of atomism. Of- Look at everything separate yeah. rather than the, the interaction between it. I mean, what I'm yeah. hearing there, other than some wonderful poetic description, is um, very much a kind of phenomenological perspective in that it's, it's looking at that moment, Herschel more than Heidegger stuff, but in terms of looking at there is something very subjective, but that by, by no stretch of the imagination means it's any less valid. It's actually mm. probably delving into something much deeper and much more substantial to build any kind of practice or kind of um, you know approach on versus what I am seeing and does give me worry and something I do need to go and look at further so I'm not dismissing it out of hand is this almost behaviorist sense of we want to come up with these models whereby we can tick off if they say this or we've seen them do that then they have a connection with nature and yeah yeah and yes there is a lot of application and scalability to that but I wonder if we miss out on a lot of what you're speaking about there. So I suppose, as well as the scientific, there's also the more activity-based. Now, if I was to be really honest, if I was to go back 15, 20 years, certainly 20 years in my practice, it was all about the skills. It was about, I've done a 150-mile canoe. I've lit a fire within six minutes. Uh, I know 700 plants. So if, if you were to speak to someone of that, cynicism of that kind of real transactional performative mindset how could we really argue that there's value in in taking this other approach of really delving into the nuance of the experience what what could they take away from that do you think so yeah i think there's one thing that i want to just engage with before before i head on to the nuance of the experience and its value because i actually do think that there is a value in gaining skill Mm, yeah, yeah. I do. I uh, um, but I do agree that there are there are ways of engaging and cultivating skill which can which enable an openness to landscapes, to flora and fauna. Whereas, um, in some ways, the pedagogy doesn't enable that. So, mm. and canoeing is a really great example of this because sometimes you'll meet canoe coaches who are um there for the fun of the of the of the paddling and it's human centric it's in the boat let's go and get wet let's go and have fun let's burn off some energy and let's head back and get onto the grass and have some food but then you get the people who are like right well if you learn these skills in a particular way you can open up the riverbank and you can see what's on the riverbank you can you know, get into the middle of the river, know how to do that safely. And then suddenly this whole scene and environment opens out. Mm. Um, so I do, I agree with you. I think there is, the, if there's a, a closeness to the education, um, to the training, whatever, you know, there are distinctions there. But mm. if there are, if there is a closeness to it, if it's just the activity for itself, um, then I do think there's a bit of a problem uh, with with um with that the the opening up um say of, of what's the value of say this emotional or um of or aesthetic 
approach to being being in the natural environment is that I actually think it's it, it opens up to us something which many of us go to look for anyway. I've been thinking about this a bit recently where, you know, we, we're never without aesthetics. We're always in some kind of environment, whether the environment is beautiful, whether the environment is a concrete building. You know, my, my office is a concrete building. And the irony is, is that I sit with my back. I don't know if it's ironic or not, but I sit with my back to a huge um, disused airfield in which there are buzzards flying around and there are kites and there are cattle mm. um, and blue jays, you know, that kind of thing. But I sit with my back to that. Um, so this is kind of contrasting aesthetic. I'm in this concrete bunker. Let's call it that for now. And then, you know, if I turn around, there's this beautiful, um, still deeply affected by human intervention landscape. But um, what what I wanted to say about that was I think it it enables us to begin to surface things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So there is certainly a phenomenological aspect, you know, a lived understanding the lived experience of the environment, which requires aesthetics actually. Um, it requires that language of um, of whether we class something as beautiful or utilitarian. You know, it's when we look at a meadow, um, for example, you, you, you've, you've got meadows near you, haven't you? Uh, I think we've spoken about this before. Yeah. You know, although a meadow can be really beautiful and there's meadow flower, it still has a utilitarian purpose, at least normally at one, one point in the year where the cattle are grazing or, uh, or whether we need it for, for whatever human purpose. Mm. Um, and those are significant aesthetic distinctions that we categorise the landscape or we, we can even categorise an experience as something which is, as we spoke about before, awe-inspiring or sublime or um, there's a term um, called deep wonder mm. that is, um, you know, it's like there's this experience that you feel but it's just outside of your grasp of, of cognition but you can feel it. It's kind of visceral and um, uh, somar aesthetics, so within the body. Mm. Um and it's it, it enable it, it, natural aesthetics enables us to give voice to that um, in a way that possibly other areas of of description can't. But I think also more practically as well is that it's the basis of of where we start to make moral decisions, ethical decisions about um, landscapes and environments too. Mm-hmm and how we ought to use them. Mm. Um, and wh- what I mean by that, just very quickly, is that we, when we say that this landscape is worth saving, it's, we shouldn't be building houses on it. it, the underpinning value of that might be because, you know, there's, there are animals, there are flora and fauna that should be saved, that it's a good thing, um, and we actually need, or, or we did have um, a few hundred years ago, and then it kind of went with industrialization. We did have a set of uh, language to be able to argue why something should and shouldn't be built on, which was based on aesthetics, based on different forms of categories. Mm. Um, so I think to try to head back to, to your, your main question after that, like meandering, <laughs> um, what 
the value in it is that it helps us give voice to something which I think is already there, yeah. is what I would I think. If you really nailed me to the mast, that would be what I would say. Yeah, and in fact, when you were talking about Deep Wonder then, I think that was the first talk I ever saw you give, and yeah. just after that. Because it was, it was this moment of you're articulating further on that path that we, we know is there, but we perhaps haven't been brought up in the the families, the culture, the training, the, given Actually. the right kind of mindset and also community where it's accepted, where we can explore those kind of things. So it's almost mm-hmm. almost the academia almost gives you an in, a free pass to be able to talk about these kind of things more because we appreciate yeah. the impact that it has. Um, so I think we mentioned about, you know, talking about reflection. You can mm-hmm. obviously preamble an experience with some of these notions and the language you, you use can kind of set up um, the opportunity for perhaps people to tune in. But I think reflection is a really magical tool, idea, process, whatever you, people would like to call it. So I'd be interested to find out, you know, what ideas you've got that people listening or watching this can kind of take away in terms of where within that reflective uh, experience could we then perhaps bring out and emphasize more of these aspects mm, that's a really that's such a cool question because i think what we um what we tend to do as educators more often than not we we tend to we, we my experiences um particularly on being on different sides of it because recently i've done a bit of training um uh in this and I've also been I've also started a nature writing course so I've had both ends of it actually I've had a right kind of performative let's tick some boxes mm-hmm. and then I've had a kind of let's there's no outcome you know there's there whatever you want to do in this time is yours like, okay <laughs> and you know you've got these it's not it's not binary by any stretch because you know it moves it moves in lots of different directions but I think what what we can do is for ourselves as educators and practitioners is begin to give voice to some of these parts of our experience that often we know are present but we we tend to ignore because of the demands of the current moment right so there are if we've got children in front of us or students in front of us i tend i tend to only teach adults mm-hmm. uh, or, or young adults and students you know depends on what day it is and um we um we can do a number of different activities for ourselves and it can sometimes be you know key terms that we take away we can sometimes narrate very in a very short and sharp manner you know so if i was to summarize this this feeling that i've got right now with these students doing their doing their thing what is it I feel? And then later on, I might come back and try to write a paragraph around that as a stimuli, you know, as a, as a stimulus, um, because it's important to surface that that emotion um, element, that emotional element, because it's something that is an indicator to us about whether this experience is good for us, whether it's meaningful, whether it's something we want to do again. Um, in many ways, it's a driving feature. Of a lot of our teaching right we we use our emotions and our reading of the environment whether that's you know outside or whether it's in a classroom to know whether this thing is going well and it's it, kind of narrating that trying to give voice to it mm. is a good way of doing that 
Um, one thing that, that I've done and experienced recently as well is to um, think about some concepts that I might have come across in a bit of reading and just taking one of those concepts and, and seeing, does it appear in what I'm doing? Yeah. Or does it appear in what I've done? Um, so you can do it kind of in the moment or you can do it retrospectively, which I think in, in this moment that we're in, doing the retrospective reflections quite um quite helpful so mm. there's um you know the the in the case of what we spoke about earlier the 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 being acted and acted upon when when of when am i being acted upon by the environment but also the interactions with the learners and the environment and how does that how does that influence me mm. and it doesn't have to be you know extensive often when people think about reflection they often think, all oh, right, and particularly in, in our practices, I think, right, I have to do lots of reading and I'm going to have to get the books out. And and I think in certain cases that's really valuable. Mm. But I also think sometimes we want to try to give voice to, um, you know, short and sharp snippets of things and just to see whether they're present, to see whether they have any credence with us. And then we can go back and do the reading and the research later if we want to, if it gives us a um a, a driving a driving force i suppose yeah. um one of the things that i think is really important for for any practice um and any practitioner is to have a community around you and to see you know you can again give yourself a stimuli and you might meet once every couple of weeks and just see right here's this concept i've i've read or heard about you know paul's given me this thing he's spoken to me about um uh uh, indigenous indigenous approaches to uh, to to identify identifying trees let's say you know something like that i'm sure you would give me something much more lucid and clear paul uh, but you know that's <laughs> i love your confidence in that thank you <laughs> so and you say right so we've got this concept now let's let's have a let's use this as a basis for a conversation mm. let's see how we take this and let's see how we might be able to incorporate it into what we do let's see if we can find a way of of um often we think of seeping out right you know you get emotions and 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 water seeps out of the pipe but in a way you kind of want to seep it into what you're doing mm-hmm. i know that sounds it's a backwards metaphor terrible <laughs> philosopher i really am i'm with you i'm, I'm saying with you don't worry yeah. so you kind of have this this group conversation and then you you kind of experiment with it and see whether you know does it have traction with the children does it have traction with your students see what they think about it and then you come back and and can reflect on it i think the final point um and it goes back to one of the the points before is that if is to hold on to kind of like concepts to hold on to to things that that we think stand out to us and see where they're present um, because they help with that kind of reading of the situation. They help with also the conversation um, that, that we might have with students, with fellow practitioners, with educators, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and assessors in a real practical term, you know, that there might be concepts that, that resonate with us and we want to find a way of giving them voice in our practice because... Mm they move from being a kind of an abstract concept to a kind of a pedagogic value. Yeah. And, and if you want it to be a pedagogic value 
as a philosopher of education who's interested in values, I would say you want to have a grounded reason for it. That's one of the things that I like about aesthetics is that it doesn't, particularly natural aesthetics, it doesn't necessarily force things onto people like other forms of philosophy might. You know, if you're a particular um, uh, moral philosopher of a particular kind, you must be, you know, you must be a virtue ethicist or a Kantian who just follows all the rules. With natural aesthetics, don't get me wrong, there are significant debates in natural and environmental aesthetics as a distinction between the two. Um, but they tend to look at the same thing, which is how do we evaluate, assess, understand and engage with natural environments and, and what's our language going to be for that? And I think one of the, the best opportunities is, and it does require, like you say, those other practitioners, that community in the fullest sense of trusting environment, to be able to actually embrace difference as well, that one person's experience can be just as valid as another's, and, and to realise that actually through that diversity, we get to explore much more through the sharing than trying to have some kind of standardised you know, approach that this is the way to explore nature, which I think is one of the issues with you know, hugely popular approaches, whether that's earth education, whether that's the scout movement, you know, huge positives, but also there are some limitations to that as well. Well, there's so, much, um, there's so much there to, to go away and kind of think about. So where can people kind of find out what you're up to? Or is there anything that, uh, you know, you'd, you'd highly recommend people go and have a look at at the minute? Obviously, other than coming to interrupt you having a conversation with a swan on, on the river. Yeah, no, I mean, if I, uh, I'll have a, happily have a bodyguard if I come across <laughs> any other swan. Um, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. I think my... Twitter handle is Lewis underscore Stockwell. I'll check that and I'll put it in the post. <laughs> Cheers. Um, and uh, yeah, you can email me if you wish at l.stockwell2 at hearts.ac.uk. Um, and if there is a text that I might suggest folk read, um, one that has always been been brilliant um, that I absolutely love is um, Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain. Because because although she doesn't ever discuss neither phenomenology nor natural aesthetics, both of them are in there. Lived experience and how we engage with nature is 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 in there. Um, and also maybe go back over things that people think that they've explored or been taught but never read it themselves. And I would go with uh, Dewey's Experience and Education because mm. I think it's a deeply misread text. Yes, yeah, yeah. And as you're saying, things like you know going back to things like Thoreau. You know, and just looking totally, yeah. at his experience and his writing with that, with the mindset, looking through the eyes of, you know, how are they describing, how are they appreciating the beauty there, which might be different from your yeah. own, or maybe, you know, there's a certain Western colonial sense to it, but being able to appreciate that perspective. Yeah, that absolutely. Means, thank you very much, Lewis. You have a, a great rest of your day. Great, cool. I'll talk to you soon. See you soon. that I had to sit down and make a list. Uh, on the list, some of the highlights, there was 
really thinking about creativity. Obviously, Lewis shared a piece of writing that he had done off the back of one of his trips. And I can't remember if we spoke about it at the time, but there's a wonderful project called Dark Mountain Project, which brings writers and artists together uh, in the form of a journal to share different pieces of creativity based around nature. Now, I think over the last few years, I've become more and more academic and less and less open to really exploring more abstract ways of representing, um, but also representing them in different ways to different people. And so, for example, since I did that interview a few weeks ago, I've been exploring writing and poetry, both reading and creating it myself, uh, as well as exploring earth pigments and creating artwork in that sense. But for me as well, a couple of the areas that really stood out was in the area of reflection, making sure that we can have an opportunity to bring out ideas and questions around how people have thought about the landscape and how they've related to it and connected to it. Because we do talk to people about their experiences so much, but there's also an opportunity to really highlight the role that the landscape and nature and the relationship that they have. On top of this, as well as some of the other conversations I've had, both in podcasts that have been released and, and ones that are coming up, there's a real legitimacy to not looking at things from a observational criteria point of view, of really trying to encourage, express, share, capture the individual experience in many, many different ways. And the fact that there is such an academic recognition of this, I think, can encourage those of us at practitioner level to not worry about something seeming scientific and statistical, and being able to instead really focus on what are the stories that the people in our communities are telling about themselves, about the group that they are part of, their community, uh, as well as the landscape that they are a member of as well. I'd be interested to find out what your thoughts are off the back of Lewis's thoughts. So you can go to the website, you can leave a comment, start a conversation. You can also find a number of different show notes referencing things that we uh, brought up uh, in the conversation. All things after the fact we thought might be interesting for you to get access to. Uh, so to find that, you can go to www Paul Mosley, that's P-A-U-L-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y dot org forward slash podcast and you'll find everything there. Thank you so much for listening to the show and I look forward to bringing you the next one. Take care.